Church podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, and the message is called Joseph's Example of Faith and Obedience. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. If we can all stand up for the reading of the word. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw they had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he be called a Nazarene. The word of the Lord. You can have a seat. All right. Amen. Well, it's really good to be here. Good to be in the word together with you guys again in Matthew. But God has been kind, and in his providence, we... Without any sort of prearrangement, this is where we are on Sanctity of Life Sunday, and the, the theme through the text is just absolutely perfect. So I have been prayerful about how this should be a reminder to us on a day like this. So there's already been a theme today, our prayer topic, and so we are going to take some of the time of this sermon and, and talk about specific things related to the sanctity of human life. And, and I won't have to try hard to do that from this text, and so I'm just so thankful that God arranged it that way. But um, so let's, let's expect that the Lord's going to challenge us today from His Word and call us to faith and call us to obedience. So let's pray to that end. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. I pray that today, um, that right now, that we would have uh, hearts that are soft and moldable and that, Lord, that we would come even now before you in faith and, and say, Lord, just speak to me. Use your word in my heart. Change me. Um, God, let me see truth for what it is and to, and to be submissive to the truth of your word. God, do in us what only you can do. Reveal to things, us things that only your spirit can reveal to our inner being, things that only you know. And I pray that we would be called to action, 
called to obedience and faith and that, Lord, as a church and as a people, Lord, that we would be lights and examples and see miraculous changes in our city, in our culture, in our state, all around us, God, for your glory and that your kingdom would expand and grow. Lord, help us to be focused now and to be intentional about hearing and applying your word. So teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So first thing I want to do is I want to really exegete the passage. So we're going to really go through, and it's not going to be an incredibly exhaustive verse-by-verse study. You'll notice as we're going through what it's going to be a little bit more from a higher view. But I do want to pull out what seems to be Matthew's intent And then the last part of the sermon, we're going to point it towards sanctity of life. And you'll see how the connections are made there. But first thing I want to do is we'll just kind of really exegete the passage. So what Matthew seems to be doing as as he's now moved us out of, um, well, we've seen the genealogy. We've already seen all kinds of prophecies that are surrounding the life of Christ Uh, The the Magi came into the view the last time, and we were introduced to the Magi, the scribes, and Herod and his evil, evil nature as a king and as a leader. But what he seems to be doing now is, as he continues the account sort of surrounding the the birth of Christ and his early childhood years, because you've got to remember, this is his early, he's not a baby anymore, we've already sort of established that, but early childhood years, is to show us how the whole picture of his life, of Christ's life, has been paved, literally paved with prophecy and predictions to show us that God is sovereign over all things. That is, immediate, that is so apparent in the short few verses that we just read, three major prophecies that Matthew is saying, this is to fulfill, this is to fulfill, so that it might be seen that God knows what he's doing, that he's sovereignly in control of everything that's happening in this circumstance, even, even the atrocities that we're seeing. God is still in control. So he draws out even a parallel. You may have noticed it. Just to point this out, you might have noticed between Jesus and the text tells us about an exodus of Jesus to Egypt, right? He, he flees with his parents or they flee with him, They're, he's probably being carried, and they go to Egypt. And there's a connection, if you are familiar with the story of Exodus itself, in the book of Exodus, we see a connection there with the Israelites and their exodus from Egypt over a thousand years. And I don't think that's on accident, that the very place that God's people were rescued from, now Jesus is going to Exodus, which at that time frame in history, they were actually known to be um, over a million Jews that were seeking, had sought asylum in Egypt and were living there peacefully. So this was actually not an uncommon thing when there was disruption for Jews. They would go to Egypt. And so his parents are joining them in that. But after telling us about the angel who had related to them the warning in the dream and how Joseph then gets up in the middle of the night and flees to Egypt, he says in verse 15, this was to fulfill... What the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. That's the first prophecy. So this scene of Jesus going to Egypt with his parents is to fulfill this prophecy that's quoted out of Hosea chapter 11 and this phrase, out of Egypt, I called my son. It's a chapter. If you were to look at Hosea chapter 11, read it later, take a note, 
Go back and see. You'll see that it's a chapter about how God loved Israel, even though Israel constantly turned from him. And the love of God that stayed and remained. And, that, and, and you see that in these minor prophets and many of the major prophets, that we see a pattern of Israel turning their back on God and God remaining a faithful father to his children. That's a good father. That's an amazing father. You fathers in the room, you know how easy it is to want to just give up when your children turn on you. But God doesn't do that. So we have a perfect example of a father who is in heaven. And that's what Hosea chapter 11 is really about. Even though God miraculously had freed the Jews from their slavery in Egypt, they kept going back to serve other gods. Even with this amazing history of Israel being freed, they continued to show unfaithfulness. And so Hosea 11 verse 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. The prophet's referring to Israel as a, as a hymn, Israel as a child. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So Hosea is certainly looking back on this time when Israel, the son of God, was, was being called out of that place of slavery, but now Matthew is connecting the life of Christ with an ultimate fulfillment of those words. Out of Egypt I called my son. So Matthew tells us that Jesus gets brought to Egypt as a child, escaping the decree of Herod so that he might become the ultimate fulfillment of the Exodus story as the true Son of God. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. Isn't that amazing? A thousand years later, Israel is freed from Egypt. The true Egypt, or excuse me, the true Israel is Jesus Christ, and there was a later fulfillment. Doesn't that that just make the Scripture all the more better to you? That even in the Exodus story, it was pointing to Jesus The whole idea of being freed from slavery to sin out of our oppressors and the oppressor being sin, Satan, and the world, that our freedom from that is in Jesus Christ. And it's all pointing to him. And Matthew is so great to show us this. This is to fulfill what was said. Out of Egypt I called my son. Israel was called out of Egypt to be freed from her oppressors. And Jesus was called out of Egypt into the land of Galilee as a child to be then a despised and rejected Savior who then frees his people from their sins. Awesome. Then in verse 16 to 18, we see another prophecy is is mentioned. So look at verse 16. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all of that region who were two years old or, or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then he fulfilled, then, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And here's the prophecy. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. So now we have an infuriate. He was already troubled by Jesus. And now he's infuriated. Herod, the king, is infuriated because he's been tricked by the Magi. And so just kind of imagine in your head what that would have been like. The Magi, they go by the decree of Herod. Hey, go find this child now that they know that it's going to be in Bethlehem. And at some point, the Magi realize this is not a good idea to go back to Herod. So we're going to just go home. We're going to just book it home. We're going to skip Herod. We're going to go a different way. We're not telling him where Jesus is. When he finds that out, he's furious, infuriated. He was tricked by the Magi. So he plans, out of his frustration and and furiousness, he plans 
the murder of all the male children in Bethlehem, two years old and under, based on the time frame that the Magi gave. So he picks that age, two years and under, based on the traveling plans and all the stuff that the Magi had given. Now, if you were to try to look this up in history, this is an interesting thing, so I figured I'd throw it out there. Josephus is probably the number one source for Jewish history in the first century, and he is an amazing historian. Nobody discredits his work, but he doesn't say anything about this massacre. And so skeptics have said, this maybe didn't even happen. Matthew must have been making this up. But there's a really good explanation for that if you go down that rabbit trail, and that is Bethlehem actually had a pretty small population. Herod was responsible for incredible massacres of thousands, millions of people. And on a scale such as that, the reality is, and this is not to minimize it, but there may have been 20 boys killed that night. So from a place of history, it's not unlikely that a historian or that none of this would ever have been recorded in a, as a major historical massacre. Does that make sense? Bethlehem is a small town. It was bad. But when you look at a small town, you get all the boys that are two years and under. It's a, it's a pretty small number. And so that's why it probably wasn't recorded in history. But here it is in the Bible, and it's recorded for us in the Bible, and we believe the Scripture to be accurate. So it indeed did happen. Herod was real, and this took place. So Matthew, um, well, so excuse me, Herod is infuriated. He's, he's tricked by these magi, and so he plans the murder of all these two-year-olds. Matthew then connects this horrific act to the tragedy within a prophecy that Jeremiah is prophesying in the midst of. So he gives us this prophecy from Jeremiah. And so if you're curious to know, Jeremiah 31.15 is where Matthew is pulling this prophecy from. And here's the, here's the prophecy in Jeremiah 31.15. It's pretty much verbatim. A voice heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And this is a really interesting connection. Because... Jeremiah, being the, weep, the weeping prophet, he speaks of the time of lament when Israel is exiled into Babylon. He's actually not speaking about a lamentation or weeping over a group of children that were at some point massacred in Jeremiah's time. But it's a prophecy of Israel being deported, being uh, taken into captivity, and the weeping, a representative, Rachel being the mother of Israel in a sense, that though she's long in the grave, there would be such weeping over Israel's captivity, their exile into Babylon. The phrase, Rachel is weeping for her children, in its original context, again, is not about a mother weeping for her dying or dead children, but about the entire nation being ripped out of their homeland and being exiled into a foreign land as slaves to pagan kings. Still a great time for lamentation and weeping. The, the, the slavery, what's happening at that time. So there was great lament and it was deep and the prophet spoke as though she, that her lament, the lament of Rachel was still being heard. She refuses to be comforted. And that's where Matthew chooses to end his quote. So we have to do a little bit of thinking here. And it's interesting how some of these gospel writers, they'll choose to include a certain section of prophecy, but we know it's out of an entire context of Jeremiah writing. So you'd be curious then, what's the next verse in Jeremiah? Because these Jews that Matthew is writing, the audience is in mind, he has a Hebrew audience in mind. They would have known this prophecy and the, what was coming next. And that's what makes this all even more incredible. 
He chooses to end the quote. And so Herod decrees, this is what's happening. Herod decrees the murder of all the males to and under. He carries out the mission and there is great bloodshed and weeping. That's reality. That's where he connects the prophecy. There's weeping, there is lamentation. But the prophecy goes on to say this next. Look at verse, chapter, Jeremiah 31, verses 16 and 17 say this. This is beautiful. The very next verse, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping. And your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Isn't that interesting? That Matthew puts the verse of the weeping and the lamentation. That's real for the moment that they're in, especially for the women of Bethlehem that are weeping over their children. But then Jeremiah's prophecy, in context, it includes what comes next. That there is a, an ultimate hope that those who weep and those that lament can cling to. And it's the promises of God in Scripture. And so it's easy to overlook it in the middle of tragedy. But here's the reality. Herod missed the mark. Herod didn't actually accomplish what he set out to accomplish. I hope you guys see that. He sought to kill Jesus. His goal was to find the Messiah and murder him. So he went on a rampage and killed the children, that were two, the males that were two and under. But he missed. He sought to kill Jesus. Others did suffer because of his evil, but Satan missed the mark. So Matthew's reference to Jeremiah's prophecy is more significant than what we see at first glance. And here's what I want to say about that. The mourning and the weeping from the mothers and fathers in the town of Bethlehem, it definitely echoed Jeremiah's prophecy that there was real weeping and this was a horrible, tragic time. But the hope of Jesus that Matthew is showing us is in the midst of that very real tragedy. And that's where our attention should be drawn. The presence of Christ and the sovereignty of God rescuing Jesus by using his father and his mother at the very right moment, at the right time, doing all the right things to pull Jesus out of Bethlehem and bring him to Egypt so that Herod actually isn't in control. God is in control. God saw to it that the Messiah of the world, the Savior of all sinners that come to him, would still be born, raised, live a life, die as our substitute, and rise again. He is seeing to it that that actually happens. So the morning... And the weeping is real, but Christ is in the center of it. Cling to that sort of hope. That's, that's real for us. It's not to say that the lament and the tragedies that we all face aren't real, so don't weep. No, weep. Weep and lament and mourn for those things that are evil, those things that are tragic that happen to you. But that's not the only verse. Look at the next verse. There is still hope. Christ is that hope. Matthew is saying that Jesus is the fulfillment. What's happening here? He is fulfilling that. That Christ being rescued out of Bethlehem into Egypt is the hope for lamenters. The hope for people who mourn because of tragedy. And it's Christ is at the center of this story. And the final prophecy that gets mentioned is in verse 23. And it says this. We can just kind of skip down there. We'll cover the context as we talk about it. But it says, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled and he would be 
called a Nazarene. So that's the third prophecy that he mentions in this section that we just want to touch on. Now, this is also really interesting because the thing about this one is that the Old Testament actually doesn't quote this anywhere. So again, if you're looking for an exact quote from the Old Testament that says what Matthew just said here, he went and lived in the city called Nazareth so that there was what was spoken by the prophets, prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. You don't find that anywhere. So again, skeptics and others have said, well, th- this is ridiculous. How could he quote? Well, what you've got to notice is that Matthew didn't actually quote anything. He doesn't quote a prophecy like he does with, with Hosea and with Jeremiah. But if you look closely, not, he doesn't quote, but he simply says that by Jesus returning to Nazareth after Herod died, he was fulfilling something. By him going to Nazareth, there was an ultimate fulfillment that was spoken by the prophets. So most commentators look at this and they say that Matthew is referring to a collective voice of all the prophets who looked forward to Jesus telling us what kind of person Jesus is going to be. That they predicted the life of Jesus and the Messiah would be a man of small earthly reputation like someone from Nazareth would be. That Jesus would be a Nazarene. That Jesus, in his coming to this earth and being the Messiah, would take on a title such as Nazarene. Now, to do that, you have to be from Nazareth. Now, there's all these other connections. Well, what about the Nazarite vow? And those of you who have the, a little bit of knowledge of Old Testament um, teaching, you'd, this, this would be recognizable to you, but I don't think it has anything to do with Jesus being a Nazarite. He's from Nazareth. He's called a Nazarene. The place, the city of Nazareth was, was nothing. It was, it was such a despised city, and that's the place that Jesus chose to grow up in, a despised place that really nobody would think would be even worth putting on a map. So, That's who Christ is. So the one prophecy that does come close to there being a tie to a specific prophet would be Isaiah 11.1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, this may be interesting to you. It is kind of cool that there is the word for branch there in that prophecy is actually a very similar sounding word even to the word Nazarene. It has a similar root word. It's very interesting. And so when you read about it, people are like, well, that, that's the branch. Jesus is the branch. He is the Nazarite. He is, and he was prophesied to be. Well, and what was the branch out of the stump of Jesse? A, a, an unexpected, small, seemingly insignificant branch coming out of a cut-off, dead stump. Unexpected. Very peculiar that that Christ would come in this way, but that's who he is and that's how he came. And so the significance being that Jesus Christ chose a life of humility and poverty to grow up in a town that was despised. And Matthew makes it clear for us that the life of Christ is surrounded by these predictions, surrounded by these meaningful prophecies, all of them showing us something about his plan to save us. Now let me just review because we covered three prophecies I'm going to just review. The first one, this is the, this is the connection. Just as Jesus was freed from Egypt, Christ, the true Israel, is our ultimate freedom from slavery to sin. Amen. We need to hang on to that. That's here in the text. This is why the connection is made between Jesus and Egypt and the great exodus. He, out of Egypt I called my son. He is the true Israel. And, and in him we find our true, sla- true freedom from slavery. He becomes this fulfillment, and there is great hope in that. 
There is great hope in Jesus being that fulfillment. Secondly, Jesus is our real hope in the midst of real lament. The prophecy that Jeremiah gives is is very clearly trying to make that connection. That there was lament in Bethlehem, just as there was lament from Rachel over the captivity of Israel, but there is hope, and Jesus is the hope in the midst of that. So we're not trying to not worry and not lament about things, but we're understanding that Christ is in the midst of those things with lamenters being for us our hope. Jeremiah's prophecy showed us that, and we're going to look to this a little bit more later in depth. This is going to kind of connect us with the sanctity of life, but that there is this evil never has the final word. Herod thought that he may have been the king of the show here, but that prophecy in, in Christ in the midst of that shows us that he doesn't have the final word. And then finally, in terms of the prophecies, this is what, we're, what we learn. Jesus is the humble servant king, the Nazarene who was despised and rejected by men, yet called, yet exalted in due time. Despised and rejected by men, but exalted. Because God's plan was to take this despised and rejected Savior who chose to become a man and be despised and rejected to ultimately exalt him at his death on the cross and his resurrection where he reigns as king and supreme. It's God's plan all along. So this prophecy plays out not only in the fact that Joseph and Mary settled in a despised town of Nazareth, but it also plays out throughout history. This idea of Jesus being the Nazarene. Jesus the Nazarene to us sounds comforting. To me, when I think of Jesus the Nazarene, that, there's nothing wrong with that to me. Like, to you as Christians, that, that's beautiful to me. I love the fact that he came and he settled in this insignificant place. But it's, it's, it's because it's who he is. And I understand who he is based on, because of the grace of God, how he's revealed that to me and to you as well. By his grace, he has showed us who Jesus is. But the significance is deeper. His greatest enemies, if you recognize from Scripture and if you've read the Gospels, his greatest enemies called him the Nazarene. This is who he became and how he became known and popularized even later on the Christians as Paul was being persecuted they connected him to who? They didn't, the Nazarene. You're the sect of the Nazarene. It was a despised word even his enemies used. When Peter denied knowing Jesus, that was the question that they asked him. Were you with the man from Nazareth? Were you with the Nazarene? And Peter denied him. Isn't that interesting? The Nazarene. It was a despised, rejected thought. Acts chapter 10, verse 37 says, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Again, from Nazareth. That's a significant thing there in Scripture to connect him that our Savior, the King of the world, is from Nazareth. There's a lot of comfort there. The fact that they overlooked and hated and despised and rejected Christ is not a sign of his weakness and not a sign of his defeat. All of these things mean that those among us, now here's the connection for us in the application, those among us, those of you who are overlooked and feel overlooked, you're despised, you feel despised, you feel rejected, you're weak and feeble because of sin, you can come to the God of our salvation. 
he is from Nazareth. You can come to him. Like, think about, isn't that just such a beautiful connection? Because Jesus is God, and he conquered sin and Satan at the cross. And so the Nazarene, it just becomes a beautiful thing. Now, so now I'm going to... we're going to, this is where we're going to take a slight detour, but we're going to still stay connected to the text in a real way because it provides for us a great platform to talk about something extremely important. It is Sanctity of Life Sunday. All right, we've already talked about that. On January 22nd, which is today, um, it would have been the 50th anniversary of Roe versus Wade had it not been overturned. Did you guys know that? Significant. And then just a couple days ago, a lot of you know that our own governor announced legislation, legislation that she will be, quote-unquote, strengthening Maine's reproductive health care laws. I mean, there's, uh, there's an active attempt amongst us and around us in our communities, in our culture, to do some of the very same things that we're reading about here from Herod and this wicked tyrant. It's, it's, it's not, we're not completely disconnected from this, guys. And so I thought it would be good to just sort of preach a little bit on this issue. First of all, in the text itself, notice in our text that there is a tyrant in the land whose desire is to take life in order to preserve his empire. That's why Herod does all of this, because he's afraid, but ultimately he's seeking to preserve his empire, his kingship, and so get rid of all the threats. That's happening in many levels in our day. Sometimes it happens on a personal scale where you will despise truth, reject what is good and true in order to preserve your empire, your kingdom, your, ideolo- your ideologies, whatever, whatever you think is right and norm. You can't, we as sinful, fleshly people can do that, can reject what is true in order to preserve what we want. But it happens on a grander scale. We have a tyrant, and I'm not afraid to say, we have a tyrant in the office of our state and the governance. And I, and I say tyrant because she has determined that human life in, that human life is of, in the womb is of lesser value and therefore disposable. And so that's a very tyrannical, evil act, is it not? And this is happening. So we have a tyrant in the land, and we have issues, we have sin. There's people that are trying to preserve their kingdom and their world and their empire. Look anywhere in the world, and you have tyrants that are doing Satan's bidding. You've seen it, I'm sure. Reels, Instagram, news, underground news, mainstream news, it's everywhere. Literally, you know, people doing Satan's bidding of snuffing out human life and calling it insignificant. Dragging the image bearers of God through the mud. Similar to Herod, we saw Pharaoh do it. This isn't the only place in the Bible we see it. Pharaoh did something similar. If you remember back in the story of Exodus in the time of Moses, he issued a decree to kill all the baby boys by throwing them into the Nile River. Another tyrant, another leader that was seeking to preserve his empire and calling for the destruction of human beings. But what? Which human beings? The youngest. Later in the law, 
we see God commanding that Israel not be like the pagans who sacrificed their children to Moloch. And some of you guys are familiar with that, but this God, of, this God called Moloch was a very real God, a satanic God, a, a demon God. And to sacrifice to this God, Moloch, you, the children would literally be passed through the fire, young children, in order to do what? To preserve the empire of the parents because they would be promised more prosperity and goodness in their lives if they sacrificed their children to God. And this was happening in the Old Testament, and this is still happening today. And it's very real, and I think most of us are aware of it. As Mike had mentioned, there's some apathy towards that, even in the church. And we need to repent of that. There has always been an attack on children. There has always been an attack on children. And it's one of Satan's primary methods in his attempt to hurt God and to destroy and thwart God's plan. I don't think that he's wrong in that by doing this, he hurts God. Do you guys think God is hurt by the killing of children? Absolutely. The killing of any human life, the taking of image, an image bearer's life, especially the righteous and the innocent. And I, you know what I mean by innocent. We understand the doctrine of sin. We understand that. But there is something about a child and their innocence. But there's always been an attack. And it makes sense because we are made in the image of God. That's the whole idea of sanctity of human life. Human life is different because we bear the image of God. God put His image upon us. We represent Him like no other creature in the world. So we bear His image. So we have a value about us that is like nothing else. So it would make sense, what does a baby represent? The most innocent of life, newness and purity. So when a human life is taken, any human life, it is an awful thing. When a child's life is taken, especially by murder, it means something different because everyone knows that that child represents the purest form of God's creation of human beings. Okay, so we know these murderers and these tyrants exist, right? We know. And they exist today in government. They exist in entities that are massive and, and so flagrant about their sin, like Planned Parenthood, in many places of influence all over the world. And so we ask ourselves, what can be done? That's what we need to do. We're not going to just rant and rage about it, but what can be done? What do we do? How do we as Christians handle this? What do we do? We can seek to change laws, and I think some of you should. And so if, if any of this kind of jars something that God's already been doing, then may this be uh, an encouragement to you to just to go and do it, to be obedient to what the Lord maybe has already been prompting you to do. And there'll be a couple opportunities for that today. But laws can be changed. I've seen it happen in certain states and lands, and, and some of you have the gifting and the ability to connect with lawmakers and to get into those scenes, and so you should do that. As individuals, don't try to rally the church. Don't, you don't have to come to an elder and let's say, let's start a ministry to change laws. No, just go do it. Pray and be, be part of doing what God is telling you to do, if that's something you've been called to do. We can peacefully get our voices heard. We can preach truth and stand in the way, literally stand in the way, and some of you are doing that. That's been mentioned already. There's a ministry that's doing that. Some of you should do that. Some of you should not do that. <laughs> some of you should be trained before you do that. But it should be done. It's another thing that can be done. And so we, we do that. We do things like that. Incredibly enough, in this text we're studying, we have a great example that I want us to lean into. 
that every single one of us can and should be doing. And so it's, it's in the text that we have. It's a little bit under the surface of the text, but it's there. And if you, have a, if you, you want to take issue with it later and say, I just you know, I made too much of it, that's, I mean, we can talk about that later. But the Magi, just to kind of recap, the Magi leave town. An angel appears to Joseph, warning him that Herod is seeking to destroy children and that he's to take a 100-mile journey on foot to Egypt and remain there until God tells him what to do next. So what do you have? You have a real man named Joseph, a father and a husband. You have a wife and a mother and a child who are in the midst of a real situation of tragedy and tyranny. Rise, take the child and his mother. That's what Joseph is told. A simple command. Interestingly, and I think there is a connection here, depending on your eschatology, but look at Revelation 12.4. It'll be on the screen. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour her. Satan is constantly on the prowl to devour, but there was a, a unique opportunity to even seek to devour the very Messiah when he came. This is the dragon. And we can see that there are supernatural powers at work to destroy Jesus. We can see that. But who has God appointed to stand up as the protector, provider, and leader in this situation? I think it's really interesting that he calls Joseph to do that. This is where men need to start paying attention in this room. Like, just think about this. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just declaring truth. And every man in this room who is a man should be thinking what Joseph is doing here and, and saying, okay, am I doing? Am I, am I living like this? Am I living righteously? It's Joseph. Joseph is called to do this. In the same, it's the same man, Joseph, is the same man who by faith earlier took Mary as his wife, even though all of their peers would have sharply disapproved. See, Joseph already made some incredible faith-filled decisions that would have gone against culture and against all of their peers' opinions. You ever been in a place where you just wouldn't make the right decision because there's a couple people in your life that might think weird about you? Or, or think, I can't believe they're doing that. But it's the righteous decision? Have you ever completely missed obedience because of peers? You are in sin. Look at Joseph and Mary. Joseph took Mary as his wife in a such a scandalous situation because he learned from God it is the right thing to do. And regardless of the peers and what all the whole town would have been saying, he by faith took Mary as his wife. Same Joseph, that's who we're talking about. This is the man who also by faith chose to adopt Jesus to be his own son. That's the second decision that he makes that was massive and would have took a lot of faith and obedience not only is he going to take Mary as wife, but he's going to say, that's my son, and I'm going to protect him. I'm going to be a father to him. I'm going to do everything that a son, all the benefits that a son gets from a father, that's what Jesus got from Joseph. He wasn't even his blood relative. He adopted him. That takes faith, and that's some incredible obedience on Joseph's part. And both of these acts of faith 
and obedience, we see a characteristic in Joseph that exemplifies our heavenly father. Joseph is living out obediently and and a trust in God that shows us something about our heavenly father and how he is and how he steps into messy situations to redeem and to rescue and to sanctify. God is a father to the fatherless, and we need men in the church who are willing to be like Joseph and to turn back the tides of fatherlessness in our culture and even the symptoms, hear hear this, the symptoms of fatherlessness even in our own homes. You might say, well, I, I am a father and I have children, but there are symptoms of fatherlessness even in homes where there's a father and a son, depending on the obedience and the behavior of that father. And you know that this is true. Look at Joseph's quick obedience to the command of God. Notice this. He wasn't asked to really do anything easy by anyone's standards. It was simple, but it wasn't easy. Rise, take up the child and his mother, and go. But even though it wasn't easy, it didn't slow him down from getting up in the middle of the night to protect the child and the child's mother from the harm of a real enemy. That's, to me, that's some incredible heroism right there. Now, I don't think we should get the picture that, you know, Herod was looming at the door and like he escaped at the last minute. It does seem that God in his providence provided a time frame because of the Magi's slowness that there was a window there for them to escape to Egypt. And that's just a beautiful thing, that God did that. He orchestrated that with the Magi. But this is a real situation, and Joseph steps up and he does it. And when we think, we think about what needs to be done to fight the wickedness of tyrants who want to kill children and destroy families in our day, we need to address foundational issues like this one. So we can think, well... What are some of the big picture, what are some of the, the, maybe the specialized things like changing laws and protesting in the streets? Those things are, are good. But what about foundational issues that are actually the root cause and of the continuation of the, of the problems that we see in our culture? And one thing that we see at the foundation of, of the life that God created as we see it very clearly is the family. It's the unit of the family. A man, a woman, united for God's glory, producing image bearers, raising them to fear the Lord, raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Women who are not ashamed of being women created as weaker vessels, yet designed to love, nurture, to create, and to comfort, and be the helpmate of your husband, unashamedly. And men being men, unashamedly masculine in God's terminology, not using their strength to hurt, not using their strength to control, but using all of that to provide, to protect, protect, and to lead as sacrificial servants. God's design. And that's what we see ultimately Joseph doing here. He was present, and he was engaged. He was present. He knew the issues around his family. He knew what needed to be done, and he was engaged to be able to be obedient to the Spirit when he heard the word from the Lord, and he went and he did what was necessary. God was doing extraordinary things, right? We look at the supernatural of this and we say, well, that's supernatural, right? There was extraordinary things happening. But he was using ordinary acts of a just man to preserve life and to promote righteousness. 
He was using an ordinary act of a man just simply responding in obedience, taking care of his family. God's doing the extraordinary, but, you know, he doesn't actually, he doesn't call us to extraordinary. We, we can't produce extraordinary. You see what I mean by that? I'm not saying extraordinary things don't happen, but we aren't supernatural beings. God is supernatural. We are pretty ordinary. But as we obey and we find ourselves in the midst of God's plan, we, see, we do see extraordinary things. But it's the ordinary, everyday faithfulness that so often the church is just missing. So we look for the extraordinary. I want to see something extraordinary. So you go and you do something extraordinary, but your family's at home and your kids are not obedient and then there's things that are going on. You just need to focus on faithfulness. God will show you the other big things to do if that's going to come in your life, but what about Faithfulness to the clear Word of God. None of this that we're talking about erases the tragedy that was happening in Bethlehem when Herod's soldiers arrived. This actually happened. That was cause for true lamentation, like we mentioned already, just as we should weep and mourn at the thought of all that is broken. We should be people who weep and mourn when we think about the brokenness in our world around us the millions of aborted babies, the children today who are being led to the slaughter in public school systems. I mean, there are literally kids being led to the slaughter by their own parents. Listen, we can talk afterwards if you have a problem with that. I'm just saying, at large, our culture, children are being led to be slaughtered by their own parents in many cases. Not every case. I know that there's a few cases. But this is our culture. This is our world. This is what's happening. And we have to be able to see it. And the, and the tragic part is, 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 is that the parents are involved in it. The deception that we, that we see regarding the meaning and the purpose of life. We see deception all around that. The utter evil and the atrocities being committed against children. And you see that everywhere in all sorts of... The... the the, creati- the sick creativity of Satan to exploit and to destroy children's lives. Be on your guard. Don't rejoice in evil. But for all of that, we should lament. And there's a part of me that if I didn't have self-control, I would just weep right now. But we need to weep at this. At the same time, we are never left without hope. And the hope is the gospel. It is only in the gospel that we can make sense of this because it is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that any sinner can come into a reconciled relationship with God the Father and begin to see at that moment, begin to see that his design, his heart, his will, and his commands are good. It is actually the very thing that you and your family need. God's way. Not the world's way, not your way, but God's way. And by coming into a repentant, humble relationship with God, say, God, you are right, I am wrong. Your word is good. My word is, it fails me. God is good. We come into that place, into relationship with God through Christ, and we begin, we can begin to see, and God can begin to build those, those pieces back together.
There will always be fatherless children in our broken world. That's a tragedy that is real and it is, that's a reality. And the enemies of Christ will always be in this world. But it is the church's influence in the world that has to be the one saying, that is not good. This is evil. That is wrong. Not only protecting or, excuse me, protesting the evil, but by repenting of sin ourselves. Repenting of sin, putting faith in Christ, and being lights in this world. You and I are the example of what it, what it means to turn from sin. So you can call somebody away from their evil and their sin. But what about you? What about me? And so how does this apply to us today? So I want to just say one thing briefly, just in case it's an encouragement to someone to hear. If you've prayed about adoption and foster care, if that's even been a thought in your mind, in your history, maybe this year is a year to step out in faith with your family and become the parents of a child who right now is being forgotten and neglected. That could be. I, I, I felt like on a day like this, especially because Joseph is an incredible example of an adoptive father like, you just, if you need the nudge, and if we as a church need to come around you and help you, oh, guys, we need a culture of adoption here at New City. A culture where there's families, not only that are qualified and, and able, because they're not rampant with sin and disqualifications, but our love is for the outcast, the downtrodden, and the one who's being despised, and the weakest among us. The least of these, my brethren. So if that's something you need to hear, then, then praise God. Then step out and do that. And, and you're in good hands by doing so, looking at even just Joseph's example. So in a more broad sense, though, of application, because not everybody should do that, but everybody should at least be a part of that. I'd say everybody, every Christian should be a, a fan, a, an absolute supporter of adoption and fostering. But in a more broad sense, think about this. What is needed more than anything in our culture are Christians who model the willingness, like Joseph, to repent of selfish sin, listen for the voice of God. You notice that in the text, how he listened. I love the song. It just was perfectly, I will wait for you. I, on your word, I will rely I'm not going anywhere until you make that clear. And once you make it clear, I'm going. I'm going to do that thing. That's Joseph, if you ask me. We see that example. But his example to repent of selfish sin, listen to the voice of God, and simply obey him. And so much of that needs to start in our homes, in your home, and in my home. So I want to just challenge you this morning. Here's the challenge as we wrap up. Examine your heart honestly, thinking about all that we've just read, thinking about the tyranny, the atrocities, Joseph's example, the sovereignty of God, the reality of weeping and lamenting, the hope of Jesus in the midst of lament. Think of all of that. Examine your heart. And if you find that there is an unwillingness for simple obedience in your own life, whether it's as a father or a mother, a husband or wife, a single parent, or whatever your position may be, can I just say, if you're not willing to just be simply obedient, don't bother by being angry about what Janet Mills is doing. Don't bother. Uh, do you not see that? There's a serious hypocrisy 
if the very same person gets angry at Janet Mills and her tyranny, but your obedience is not happening in the home as a father or mother, you're not simply obeying God's word. It doesn't mean everything's going to work out perfectly, but you are set. Your hand is to the plow and you are not looking back. It's about obedience to Jesus Christ and his word and depending on his grace and his mercy for all of those trials that you're facing that are real with your family, with your children, all the stuff that is real. But are you clinging to Christ and are you committed to obedience? And, and so not, not only Janet Mills, but any, any other tyrant because until the church, until you and I, believers in Christ, are able to model repentance and faith in Christ in our homes... In our marriages and with our children, we are playing the hypocrite. So think about that. Examine that. Examine your own heart. What are the changes? What are the repentances? What, are the obedi- what, what do you need to be obedient about today? As a father, a mother, a wife, a husband, a brother, sister, whatever it is. And ask the Lord to bring you to that place of repentance and obedience, faith in Christ, and making it first in our own homes and in our hearts. If we are going to value human life and understand its sanctity, like we say we do, its preciousness, and then convince the enemies of Christ and those that are spiritually apathetic of the same thing, we want to convince the world that life is valuable, that human life is God's making, and so let's treat humans differently. Let there be a, a peculiar, incredible respect for human life because God is the maker of life. If we're going to convince anybody of that, then you and I need to model a serious conviction for the truth of Jesus Christ and a commitment to obedience. And this is how we change the world and grow the kingdom. And I don't mean that in some weird cliche way, let's go change the world. But really, like what's our world? What are the things that we're upset about around here? And we should be awfully upset if we have been living in disobedience and hypocrisy. So fathers, dads, I, I know there's a lot in this, in this for you. If you're, not, if you're not yet a father, let's say you're a young man, or maybe you're a, a man and you're acting like a boy, or whatever, whatever this is, you're a male figure, this is a model for you to follow. So aim at that. If you're not a husband yet, well, what do you want to be? What kind of husband are you going to be? If you're not a dad yet, what kind of dad do you want to be? If you are those things and you need to backtrack and repent and make some serious decisions in your home, do it. Just, just do it. The, the quick obedience of Joseph is such a beautiful example, is it not? All of us have, a, I think, a way that we can take what has been said today and say, Lord, apply this to my heart. So that's the, that's the challenge. God is doing amazing things. Don't be discouraged. We can lament, but Christ is in the midst of it. He is with us. He is sovereign, and we have hope in him. Amen, church? Father, grant to your church a heart of repentance. Though we know we are ultimately, if in Christ, we are free from condemnation. We are yours. We are righteous in your eyes. Christ has been judged in our place for all of our sin and apathy and hatred, our carelessness. But even then, we have remaining sin. And Lord, we are so weak sometimes. Would you strengthen what remains in us? 
Would you give us a sure and steadfast hope in Christ, looking unto Jesus, laying aside every weight that besets us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Have we yet resisted sin unto bloodshed? How serious are we, God, and help us to be serious about the sins that we continually commit in our own lives and in our own homes. So may men step up and be the husbands and and examples and leaders that they are called to be and women, the leaders and examples and nurturers and, and givers and providers that they are called to be and the giftedness that you've given to both men and women and the children that are being raised in this church. Give us such a seriousness about the gospel and about obedience to Christ that there would be real change so that when we go out into the world, so that when we proclaim and we have righteous anger about the tyranny and we try to affect real change, that we are not being hypocritical about it. But Lord, I believe, Lord, if families, if homes, if marriages are tight and intact and godly and righteous, and if, if there's unity between husband and wife in these issues, how incredibly strong your church will be. So do this, Lord. And we also pray and plead and, and uh, we're asking, Lord, interceding on behalf of the unborn, uh, your image bearers of any age that are being wrongfully treated and despised and rejected and thrown out. God, we intercede that you would stop them and that whoever among us should be in a physical way standing in the way and whoever of us should be adopting and fostering and whoever should just be repenting and getting counsel for our marriages so that we can be people who adopt and foster whatever needs to be done. Lord, help us. And so we just thank you, God, again, at the end of this, that you are, you are the reason why life is precious We look to you, our faithful God. You are creator and sustainer of all things. And so we just thank you. And we worship you. And we repent and we turn from sin. Help us, help us in these things, Lord. It's for your glory that we pray. For the glory of your son, Jesus. And the spread of his name. pray, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.